Warning, this episode contains details of graphic violence and sexual assault. Listener caution is advised. My story today is a terrible and horrific one. It starts in and around a town called Le Portel, situated in the north of Calais. It's about 45 kilometres from Calais, on the north coast of France. If you were to take a boat to cross the channel, you'd find yourself in the English town of Hastings. Every year during the month of February, from the Sunday night to the Tuesday night, the town of Portel and the surrounding villages holds the customary carnival. Disguised carnival goers progress from house to house and they're offered crepes and drink while trying not to be recognised. On the Tuesday night the carnival closes with the burning of an effigy called a batisse. The tradition stems from the 1700s when fishermen would leave for six months at sea a mix of superstitions and farewells. On the 11th of February 1997, Peggy and Amelie Merlin, 19 and 16 years old, were getting ready for the last night of the carnival. They were back in school to prepare their disguise. Peggy was going as a marquise and Amelie as a Piero, the jester from the Comédie Italienne. The two sisters were meeting up with other friends, amongst them two new friends who were also sisters, Audrey and Isabel Ruffin, 17 and 20 years old. Isabel was to be an Indian and Audrey a red musketeer. They had not been long in the portel, having moved there a couple of months earlier, and they were looking forward to being shown around by Peggy and Amelie. As tonight was the last night, there was the ball, a ball that lasted all night long and went on in all the surrounding villages. Before they left, Peggy and Amelie's mother told them to stay together and not get separated. After the carnival they went, 50 francs in pocket, they drank a bit, danced and sang, just like everyone else that night. The next morning, as was arranged the day before, Peggy and Amelie's mum was waiting for them at 7am at the town's central square so they could all take breakfast together. But they weren't there. At first she didn't worry too much, thinking that they probably stayed over at a friend's house. They had lots of friends in town. But near dinner time, she called Isabel and Audrey's mother, who'd had no news from the girls either. They were both starting to worry. They went to the nearest police station in the early afternoon. The gendarmes told them not to worry, they'd turn up eventually. They were probably at some friend's house. It was the carnival, after all. The mothers insisted that this wasn't normal for their daughters and reminded the gendarmes that two of the girls were juveniles. The gendarmes finally agreed to send out a bolo, which they did with the head of runaways on it. The parents of the girls were incredulous, stating that they surely wouldn't run away still dressed in their disguises, with no money, no identity cards 
and no change of clothes. The four girls were extremely close to their mums. They wouldn't have run away. For 48 hours, the police didn't seem to be at all worried. Peggy was born on the 15th of May 1977 and Amélie the 16th of February 1980. Their mother, Marie-Josée Merlin, was widowed and they were all the three very close. Isabelle, born the 18th of May 1976 and Audrey, the 28th of October 1979, were orphaned. They had a deep relationship with their adoptive mother who adopted them after the death of their birth mother when they were still very small. After 48 hours of no news and not much police activity, the family started organising their own search parties in and around Le Portel. The usual route to the carnival went from Le Portel to a nearby village, Equien Plage, about five kilometres away. Friends and volunteers searched everywhere Disused train tunnels, ditches on the side of the road, beaches, dunes and also the blockhouses left over from the Second World War that were still scattered along the coastline. Nothing was found. The girls had completely vanished. Witnesses came forward. One of them showed a photo taken the night before. Audrey and her friends were definitely at the carnival at Le Portel, but nobody had seen them at Eken. Nobody. They disappeared between Le Portel and Ekien. On the third day of the disappearances, the telephone rang at Isabel's and Audrey's house. On the other end was a man who refused to give his name, but he wanted to tell her about something that had happened to him and his girlfriend the night of the carnival. He told her that they were sat on a bench when they noticed two men staring at them. The man said that they creeped him and his girlfriend out, so they left, but the men followed. At one point, the man said he thought they'd lost the two guys, but they reappeared in a white van with green stripes on the sides. The van was registered in the north, the 59th department. In France, before 2010, registered cars carried the number of the department where the car owner lived. The anonymous caller said that he didn't know if the information would help and then hung up. As they had no leads whatsoever, Laure Lamotte, Isabelle and Audrey's mother rang straight away the gendarme, then she alerted the press. Four days after the girls went missing, the local regional newspaper, La Voix du Nord, published an article detailing the affair and with a description of the van. Witnesses came forward about seeing the van on the night of the carnival, with two men behaving strangely inside. From that moment on, the national press became aware of the four missing teenagers 
and sightings poured in from all over France. On the sixth day, a friend of Amélie's came forward saying that he'd seen her the day of the, after the carnival in a nearby town, Outreau. He was certain it was Amélie, he said. More people came forward. They'd been seen in Fréjus in the Var, some 1,000 kilometres away, Paris, in fact, all over France. These questionable sightings just seemed to comfort the gendarmes in their runaway theory. How the police could believe that they'd run off to Fraser's with no money and all four of them in disguise is anyone's guess. The investigation took a more darker turn after another anonymous phone call to Laura Lamotte, Isabelle and Audrey's adoptive mother. This time it was a woman. She said that the van that everyone was looking for belonged to two brothers, the Jordans, both nasty pieces of work. They lived at Rudistad in Dan, a village of around 1,300 people. Dan is 20 kilometres south of Le Portel. The search team put together by the families of the missing girls headed straight there. The place where the Jordans lived was a slum, filthy and run down. The garden was full of crap. The team went into the village asking questions about these two men. What they heard did not reassure them. The villagers informed them that Jean-Michel Jordan had done 15 years for murder and Jean-Louis 10 for rape. The team immediately called the police, who came, had a walk around, then left. The next day, the police station got a call from other gendarmes who notified them that they'd seen a white van with green stripes with the registration 7554PL59. The owner was identified and the police paid him a visit. The owner told them that he'd recently sold the van to a Jean-Michel Jordan, the Jordans, again. The gendarmes arrived at the Jordan's pigsty of a house and arrested everyone, the father and his three sons, Jean-Luc, Jean-Michel and Jean-Louis. A gendarme interviewed in Fête Entrée l'Accusé said that the place was horrific and at one point he saw a child asleep amongst a pile of clothes. The child was so pale that the gendarme nudged the bed and let out a sigh of relief when the child moved. Nine people lived in this tiny hut. The smell was awful, with animal and human feces everywhere. The place had no running water or toilets. Scrap metal was piled up in the garden, with kids running around everywhere. A hundred and fifty tons of junk was removed later, when the yard was cleared out. The Jordans were in the scrap business. Nine days after the carnival, the Jordans were detained, but were stubbornly silent faced with the gendarmes' questions. They denied being at the carnival. The gendarmes wondered if Jean-Louis even stood, understood the questions. Two witnesses who had seen the van the night of the carnival said that they were so disturbed by the behaviour of the two men inside, they followed the van around for two hours, 
watching as the two men kept picking up hitchhikers between Lupotel and Ekin. These two witnesses said that they'd seen the girls walking along the side of the road, but they hadn't seen them being picked up by the van. They recognised Jean-Michel and Jean-Louis in a lineup as the two men prowling in the van that night. Confronted by this statement, Jean-Michel stayed silent, but Jean-Louis, who was a bit mentally slow, started to become agitated. The gendarmes realised that they could probably get him to talk if they treated him gently. They spoke softly and offered him treats, then laid the photos of the four missing girls on the table. They spoke to him about his little sister, who'd died some years before, a sister to whom he was very attached. They asked him how he'd feel if she'd have been left somewhere, in the dark and alone. He started to fidget and couldn't take his eyes away from the four smiling faces in the photos. One of the officers said that he had to help them. The girls might be in great danger. Jean-Louis blurted out that there was nothing that could help them now. The girls were dead, buried on the San Cecile beach amongst the dunes. To say that the Jordan family was dysfunctional would be an understatement. When the profiles and criminal history of these two men were made public, there was an outcry in France. Jean-Michel Jordan was born on the 30th of January, 1962. His brother, Jean-Louis, the 21st of June, 1959. Their father was a violent alcoholic, unemployed because of an amputated leg. Their mother had 13 children, 10 from a first relationship and three from the last. Growing up, their father would beat the kids when he'd had a drink. Jean-Louis would often sleep outside in the yard, huddled inside the carcass of an old car to escape his father's wrath. The mother, well, she set no boundaries and her sons could do no wrong. Investigators would even later say that was that there was more than enough evidence to point to an incestuous relationship. Later, as the violent father aged, he, in turn, became the brother's punching ball and was often beaten by Jean-Michel. Jean-Louis didn't know how to read, write or count. He was cross-eyed and difficult to understand when he talked, speaking fast and with a heavy local dialect. He'd go around with his trailer in the surrounding villages, collecting old fridges, car doors, cookers, then he smashed them into pieces no matter what the time of day and night. The neighbours' complaints would be met with the hurling of insults, metal bolts and pieces of iron. Jean-Louis was a sexual predator. For him to have sex, he had to take it by force. In August and September of 1985, he was sentenced to 12 months in prison for indecent assaults committed with violence, constraint or surprise. He re-offended five months later and got another nine months in jail. Then in May 1988, he saw a young girl, he'd just turned 15, walking her cousin's baby in a pram. He jumped on her, stripped her naked and tried to rape her before strangling her and leaving her for dead. He tried to be careful. He put socks on his hands to avoid leaving prints, but many people had seen him prowling around that day. The survivor was presented with 200 photos 
and she didn't hesitate to pick him out. The trial was held in 1989, where he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. The village breathed a, a collective sigh of relief. For many months, a mass prowler had been stalking women at night, peering through windows and hiding in bushes. The village men had teamed up to patrol the empty streets at night. They were sure it was Jean-Louis. The stalking stopped once he was put away. He was released in 1994. His younger brother, Jean-Michel, was also a piece of work. He was a big man with hands like shovels and was always on the brink of exploding. Of average intelligence, he grew up in Dan until eight years old when he went into care. In 1980, when he was 18, he'd been sentenced to 10 years in prison, three suspended for a sexual assault with violence, a crime committed when he was still a juvenile. He was released in 1984 at the age of 22. He started living with a girl he met at the local village ball. He liked motocross and drove around the beach and village like a crazy guy. He'd already been convicted of theft, violence and animal abuse, as well as sexual assault. On the 21st of June 1986, Anita Dassonville's body was found on the sand dunes near Jean-Michel's home. She'd been strangled with a tie she'd worn around her neck. Jean-Michel was arrested immediately. He was the last person to be seen with her. He talked about a blunder on the beach, but not murder, to the gendarmes. He was found guilty of murder in 1989 and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Of note is a psych diagnostic. He had psychopathic tendencies, but the psychologist estimated that he was readaptable. He was released after serving nine years and three months. In 1996, he lived in Itatlu with his girlfriend and he had two children. He was working and every night he went back to the family house in Dan, meeting up with his brother Jean-Louis and his other brother Jean-Luc and his family. Jean-Luc's five children were being brought up in the Jordan family tradition in the slum house, no rules and no moral compass. The municipality were on the point of finding the family new accommodation when the brothers kidnapped, raped and murdered four teenage girls. Jean-Louis Jordan was taken to the beach Saint-Cécile where he led the gendarmes to a particular sand dune and the police started digging. 10 centimetres, 20 centimetres, 50 centimetres and at 70 centimetres they saw a bit of red fabric poking up, red like the musketeer costume. Audrey, Peggy, Amélie and Isabelle were found buried in a pile, one on top of the other. Jean-Louis Jordan showed no emotion, nothing. The two mothers were on the way back from their lawyers when they heard the news about this discovery on the radio. This was of course an immense shock. How could the national news know about this before they were informed? 
The autopsies found that they'd been strangled. Obvious signs of violence were found on their bodies and they'd been hastily redressed. As if all this wasn't horrific enough, sand was found in Peggy's lungs, showing that she'd been buried alive. Isabel was found at the bottom of the grave. She'd been badly beaten and was the only one who hadn't been raped. France was outraged. People marched on the streets and demanded that these monsters be handed over to the crowds. The French president at the time, Jacques Chirac, even made a speech saying how much he was horrified and upset by the crimes. Such was the anger and hate that the rest of the Jordan clan had to be hidden and protected. This was even before the totality of the details were made public. The Jordan home was burnt to the ground in an arson attack not long after their arrest. The investigative judge again tried getting Jean-Michel to talk. Finally, he admitted being at the carnival and giving lists to the many merrymakers during the night. He even admitted picking up the four girls and taking them to the beach, but from that moment onwards, he just lied. He said that the girls willingly followed him and Jean-Louis up to the blockhouse, where they sat and talked, and that at one moment he left to get something from the van and to smoke a cigarette. When he went back to the blockhouse after about an hour, he found that Jean-Louis had killed them all. He accused his brother of everything, only owning up to help him bury the girls' bodies. Meanwhile, Jean-Louis was accusing Jean-Michel. He said that the girls understood pretty quickly that they were trapped in the van, that they couldn't open the doors from the inside. The men made them get out and forced them into the blockhouse, and Jean-Louis said that Jean-Michel took them one by one outside, while Jean-Louis guarded the others, until there was only one girl left, Audrey. He admitted that he sexually assaulted her, then watched as Jean-Michel strangled her with his arm. Jean-Louis' version seemed more credible, but there was no way they could have got the four teenagers into the blockhouse. It was dark, very dark, and it was pouring down. To reach the blockhouse, you needed to climb over slippery, sharp rocks, barbed wire surrounded the opening, and they had no torch. There was no sand found in the girls' underwear. They weren't raped on the dune. They were both lying. They changed their versions of the event many a times, going as far as saying that they never picked the girls up in the van in the end. Luckily, there was the definitive proof that they were lying. One of Orgy's earrings was found in the van. She was still wearing the other one when she was found. In light of all this, the rapes and murders probably took place in the van. The girls most likely started fighting with their aggressors. All of the bodies had traces of beatings. They were raped and murdered in the four square metres of this van. The girls watched as their friends were raped and killed, one by one, until only Audrey was left, and then she too was gone.
The Jardin brothers were not ready to admit their responsibility in the murders, but everyone had hopes that they'd confess or at least give some details during the trial. The trial started on the 16th of October 2000 at the Assizes Court in Saint-Omer. Crowds of people had made the trip to catch a glimpse of these monsters. Jean-Michel was the first of the brothers to enter the dock, a huge man with hands of a lumberjack. He seemed sure of himself and looked around the courtroom scornfully. Then Jean-Louis entered. His demeanour was completely the opposite, head hunched between his shoulders and shaking like a leaf, crazy eyes trying to escape from behind thick bifocal glasses. It was a foregone conclusion that, that they would get live, but would they speak up? Jean-Michel just stood there, arms crossed, and refused to answer any questions. He just kept repeating, quote, I don't understand what I'm doing here, I'm innocent, I didn't do nothing, unquote. Jean-Louis is different. Though mentally challenged, he tried to answer the questions, but nobody understood a word he was saying. He was gabbling in the local dialect called the Sti. It's nearly a completely different language to French. It's spoken in the north of Picardy and some parts of Belgium. The gendarme in charge of the investigation was called to testify. He stated that the van was bought by the two brothers a few days before the girls were snatched. He was certain that the van was bought with uh, abduction and rape in mind. The proof that pointed in this direction was that they'd tried it two days before. A witness stated that she was on the telephone in the cabin when a van stopped just in front of it. Jean-Michel Jordan was driving. When the witness walked away, he started following at a snail's pace. Then when he overtook her, she could see the back doors of the van opening. One can imagine that Jean-Louis was in the back, ready to pounce. It didn't happen. It was a rehearsal. Other witnesses had come forward. Some of the carnival goers who had been picked up that night by the brothers stated that once you were in the back, you couldn't open the van's, the van's doors from the inside. At one point during the trial, the president of the criminal court decided to take everyone to the St. Cecil Beach. The lawyers, the juries, the magistrates, the accused and the journalists were all gathered at the scene of the crime. This was mainly because the brothers were stubbornly maintaining the story of taking the girls to the blockhouse. This housing proved it wasn't possible. The trek was a nightmare for the jury, stumbling over the razor-sharp rocks, slipping and falling, and they were doing it in daylight. The tide was high, as it was on the night of the murders, and they realised that they needed to put down ladders to be able to access the blockhouse. Jean-Michel acted as if he was just out for a pleasant stroll on the beach, while Jean-Louis seemed to be more affected by being in proximity to the gravesite. Back in the courtroom, the mothers of the slain girls came to talk about their children and their immense loss. They looked the two killers in the eyes and demanded that they tell the truth. They got nothing, no answers, no explication, no regret from the two ogres in the dock. 
The verdict came on the 27th of October 2000. The jury found that there was a leader and a follower. Jean-Michel was the leader, Jean-Louis the follower. Jean-Michel was sentenced to life in prison with a non-parole period of 22 years. Jean-Louis the same, but with a non-parole period of 20 years. Jean-Louis had spoken out and Jean-Michel had stayed silent. The jury certainly wanted to point this fact out. At the announcement of the verdict, Lord Lamotte, Audrey and Isabel's mother, said, quote, Our girls are no longer with us, so we'll always be closing our arms around emptiness. But at least they can't hurt other children and other families. End quote. Luc Frémiot, the main prosecutor, was interviewed by Christophe Onderlat on his show Onderlat Raconte. He remembered the horror of the affair, the wall of silence that was Jean-Michel, and how he tried to find some humanity in Jean-Louis. Jean-Louis was the one who had redressed the girls, and not one button was undone when they were found, as if he tried to repair the irreparable. An empty beer can was found on top of a dune near the burial site. Luc Frémiot had asked Jean-Louis during the trial, quote, So, after killing and burying these children with Jean-Michel, was the beer good? Jean-Louis answered, No, it was warm, sir, unquote. The retrial on appeal, because there is always a real trial on appeal now in France, unless the accused doesn't want one was held in March of 2002. The previous sentences were confirmed. Audrey and Isabel's mother, Laure Lamotte, gave a last interview to the paper La Voix du Nord in 2007 at the home of Amélie and Peggy's mother. Their shared grief had made them close over the years. Laura Lamotte said that she'd held on to life thanks to the support of her only living daughter and her grandchildren. Laura Lamotte passed away on the 24th of November 2012 at the age of 80. Marie-Josie Merlin gave her last interview in February 2017 to, also, La Voix du Nord, during a tribute for the girls 20 years after their murder. She related how the horror of losing her children had provoked serious physical and social problems for her, how she suffered from insomnia, which worsened when the anniversary of the murders approached, how she was terrified that Jean-Michel Jordan was about to be released. Rumours that were making the rounds at the time and were entirely false. Marie-Josie Merlin passed away at the age of 62 on November the 5th, 2017. Jean-Louis Jardin died at the age of 59 in the prison hospital on March the 6th, 2019, after a long illness. He'd already served his non-parole period but he was still incarcerated. Jean-Michel Jordan is still in prison near Lens. His non-parole period was up in 2019, 
but apparently no demand for parole has been asked for. His lawyer from 1997 said that the judge who would be willing to sign the release form isn't yet judge and probably hasn't even been born yet and that nobody in their right mind could even imagine letting him out. But it wouldn't be the first time now, would it? Thank you for listening to True Crime Fans. I'm your host, Deb, writing, research, translations, recording and editing are all done by me, Deb. Please join me next time when we'll be off back down south to the Mediterranean coast. I'll be putting out a short update on the Elodie Cooley case as soon as the appeal trial of Willie Barden has ended sometime at the end of the week or the beginning of next week. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can buy me a glass of wine at buymeacoffee.com or rate and review. My sources for this episode are linked in the show notes. They include Fait Entrer l'Accusé, Under la Raconte, the online news sites La Voix du Nord, Liberation, RTL et France 3. See you next time. Bye.